Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Xi Jinping and other leaders in the Chinese Communist Party boast their popularity with citizens based on the results of opinion polls. A new approach to these surveys show that the leaders might not be as popular as they think. And a tribute to Rosemary Smith, the woman who fearlessly took on the male drivers and rocked the world's rallies. But first. I've recently returned from a week in Hawaii, and I didn't spend all that time on the beach. I was visiting the headquarters of America's Indo-Pacific Command and touring the Pearl Harbor Naval Base. Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor. I saw warships all around. I spoke to admirals from the United States, from South Korea, from Germany. And those conversations all revolved around various aspects of naval power, whether that's American concerns that China is going to flex its muscles around Taiwan in the aftermath of that island's elections, or the German Navy's decision to send a warship to Asia, projecting European naval power into the Pacific, or of course, the Korean Navy's increasing ties with other Asian countries from India to Japan. It isn't just about the Pacific, it's also about threats to free trade over the oceans. Good morning, Geo. Tensions in the Black Sea are escalating with the Russian Navy staging live fire drills in a deliberate show of force. That comes nearly a week. In Europe, the war in Ukraine is increasingly focused on the maritime contest for Crimea and Russia's blockade of the Black Sea. And in the Middle East, the Houthi rebel group has disrupted global trade with barrages of missiles against shipping. U.S. military jets from the aircraft carrier USS Eisenhower attacked Houthi targets in Yemen today. This is now the eighth U.S. strike against... All in all, I think it shows us how the oceans are returning to the heart of geopolitics. Naval power is really back. Shashank, you've described a rather chaotic situation on the world's waters. Tell us, why is dominance of the seas so important? The seas are fundamental to so many aspects of our daily life. So about 80% of global trade by volume travels by sea. It's about 50% measured by value. And of course, that includes a lot of oil and energy that is vital for the world economy. And it isn't just physical goods. There are about 574 
active or planned submarine telecoms cables around the world. They carry about 97% of internet traffic. And it's really increasingly clear to us what happens when these kind of maritime conduits are disrupted. So, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic caused chaos in global supply chains because of the disruption to ports. You might remember the Suez Canal being blocked in 2021 by the Ever Given, the container ship. And of course, Russia's invasion of Ukraine in 2022 played havoc with the world grain market. So we can see all these ways in which the waterways are fundamental to the world economy, to daily life. And we have all these reminders of what happens when those are dislocated or blocked. And in terms of power on the seas, which countries are leading the pack? Well, historically, since the end of World War II, the US Navy has been really the dominant force on the oceans. And in many ways, it still is. If you look at the crisis in the Red Sea, it's America's Navy that has been at the forefront of shooting down Houthi missiles and trying to keep the seas safe for international shipping. And America and its allies still have a technological edge in several areas, notably in undersea warfare, whether that's sensors that can spot Russian submarines coming into the Atlantic, or whether that's extremely quiet nuclear-powered submarines of their own. But what we are seeing is that naval dominance is beginning to erode. China's navy is now the world's largest by the number of ships, not by tonnage, although it's catching up in that regard as well. It builds most of the world's vessels at a time when American shipyards have been withering. And European navies are really a pretty pathetic shadow of their former selves. They lost about 28% of their submarines, around 32% of frigates and destroyers between 1999 and 2018. So in short, Western naval dominance is no longer as assured as it used to be. And you say that the oceans are drifting back to the heart of geopolitics. Why now? I think a large part of it is that US-China competition is the driving force of geopolitics today. And that competition is maritime in nature. It's Taiwan, for instance. It's the South China Sea. Wars over these places would be wars between navies and air forces more than they would be wars involving the US Army. Although, of course, ground forces would also be very important. In addition to that, I think... The competition is about who dominates Asia. And Asia is ultimately a maritime theatre. It's about who has influence, for example, in the ports of the Philippines or Singapore, uh, who controls territory in the South Pacific Islands. It's about competition for naval facilities, not just in Asia, but also all across the world. You see China trying to secure port access everywhere from the coast of Africa to even the United Arab Emirates. And in addition to that US-China dynamic, I think we're also seeing intense challenges to this principle of the world, freedom of navigation, that the high seas are places where any country can pass. We're seeing those challenges play out all across the world, whether that's in the Black Sea in the form of Russia's blockade of the Ukrainian coast, or even in the Red Sea, where the Houthis have really blocked up this critical waterway. But of course, technology and climate disruption are also playing a role in putting sea power back into geopolitics. Tell me a bit more about that. How are technology and climate playing into this? On the environmental side, we have seen drought affect the level of water in the Panama Canal, which is the waterway that connects the Atlantic to the Pacific. And trade through that route has dipped by about 30% since November. 
In colder climates, we're also seeing melting sea ice open up new shipping routes in the Arctic that are beginning to cause geopolitical friction between Russia and other Arctic players. On the technology side, I think we're seeing how advanced naval weapons are becoming accessible even to smaller countries or non-state armed groups. We have seen, for example, how the Houthis have been able to use pretty sophisticated cruise missiles and even anti-ship ballistic missiles, weapons that have never been used until the last couple of months to attack ships. We have also seen Ukraine, a country that really has no navy to speak of, able to use missiles and naval drones to go out and strike the Black Sea Fleet to the point where it's been able to destroy maybe a fifth of the Black Sea Fleet in the last few months alone. So technology, perhaps you could say, is in some ways bringing naval power into the hands of more and more countries. Shashank, what happens if these seaways become even more contested or even become impassable? Well, there's obviously the disruption to commerce. The shipping system is adaptable. Ships can take different routes. But of course, that adds to their travel times. It adds to costs, and that can have an impact on supply chains and eventually, over time, on inflation. But I think, ultimately, if you look at the most extreme scenario, it's a war over Taiwan. And a war over Taiwan is very likely to involve a Chinese blockade of the island, which would be disruptive enough on its own terms, given its importance in semiconductors, for instance. But more broadly, if that results in a counter-blockade of China, if we saw America and its allies try to target Chinese shipping at choke points in Southeast Asia, like the Malacca Strait, that would be really disruptive. It would cause a naval war to spread beyond the Western Pacific, all the way down, perhaps right into the Indian Ocean and beyond. And it's difficult to overemphasize how costly that would be. A recent simulation by Bloomberg, for example, shows that a blockade of Taiwan and Western countermeasures could cut global GDP by 5%. Okay, that outcome sounds far from ideal. Shashank, how might the world avoid such troubled waters? Well, part of it, I think, is Western countries investing in areas where they keep their technological edge. And so things like the AUKUS agreement, the deal in which Australia is working with the UK and the United States to buy and build new nuclear-powered attack submarines, I think that's one way to try to offset China's growing surface fleet. But I think it's not just about bigger navies. It's also about a change in mindset. It's about diplomacy having to focus on ports, maritime alliances, trade routes. It's about monitoring vulnerable maritime infrastructure like pipelines. It's about reviving things like the American merchant marine, the civilian shipping fleets that would be crucial for American military logistics in any Pacific war. And I think, finally, it's about remembering that war at sea is not like war on land. You can replenish your armies by recruiting new soldiers and taking tanks out of storage. Building new warships, if they're destroyed, can take years. And Western shipbuilding, particularly American shipbuilding, has absolutely shriveled up over the years. And I think if America wants to compete with China, if it wants to be prepared for a potentially serious naval contest or a naval war, reviving American shipbuilding is going to have to be at the heart of any such strategy. Shashank, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. 
Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. China's Communist Party has been in power for three quarters of a century, and it's been doing a pretty good job. That is, as long as you accept the results of long-standing surveys of the country's citizens. Others question the value of such responses in a country whose leaders have no qualms about the use of intimidation and force. So how do you get the most accurate picture when people are reluctant to say what they might really think? Chinese officials say they're popular, and they say that they have evidence in the form of opinion surveys that researchers at Harvard University conducted between 2003 and 2016. Gabriel Crossley is our China correspondent. These surveys all show that Chinese citizens largely support the government. So in the last one, over 90% of Chinese people said they did so. So we're talking about quite impressive numbers. However, censorship and political repression are both common in China. So it's hard to say whether or not people in surveys are saying what they really think about the Communist Party. Now some new research is looking to find a way around this problem. Okay, so before we get into the nitty-gritty of that research, given the repression, how would one actually go about measuring the public satisfaction in the first place? That's a good question. Gauging public opinion in China is tricky. Foreign firms are generally banned from carrying out surveys. And Chinese pollsters tend to avoid sensitive subjects like politics for obvious reasons. Some of these pollsters do work with Western researchers. That's how the Harvard studies were conducted. But respondents might not be sharing negative views for fear of reprisal. So recently, researchers at the University of Southern California tried to get around this problem by using a survey method called a list experiment. Tell me a bit more about this list experiment method. How did it work? It's pretty clever. So the survey was conducted online. Participants were divided into two groups. The first group was shown three anodyne statements, such as, I consider myself a sports fan. And then those in the second group were shown the same three statements, plus one sensitive statement, such as, I support Comrade Xi Jinping's leadership. Respondents in both groups were then asked how many statements they agreed with. But crucially, they didn't have to say which ones they agreed with. This allowed them to express their opinions on sensitive subjects indirectly. The researchers could then subtract the average answers of the first group from those of the second group. Then they could estimate the share of respondents who would agree with the sensitive statement. Okay, that is pretty clever. What did the results show? The results, which were published a few weeks ago, suggest that the Communist Party has less support than was previously thought. So the researchers estimated between 50 and 70% of Chinese people supported the party. This was when they did the survey in 2020. 
Around half of respondents did not agree that China's system of government was best. Nearly 40% said they were afraid of the consequences of protesting against the state. And the survey showed support for Mr. Xi was between 65 and 70%. This is an upper limit of the true support, according to the researchers, because there might still be concerns about online surveillance. So some respondents still might be giving more positive responses than they think. Mr. Xi's approval rating has probably fallen since then as well because of his zero COVID policy, which angered many Chinese who grew tired of the constant testing and lockdowns. And also lately, the economic outlook in China has been pretty gloomy. Lots of young Chinese are struggling to find jobs. Okay, but even if Mr. Xi's approval rates have fallen, they're still rather high, no? I mean, that would be the envy of many Western politicians. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just to compare, according to a recent poll, only a third of Americans approve of the job President Joe Biden is doing. But the results of the study might still be concerning for the Communist Party. The party relies on the public believing that it is overwhelmingly popular. So if upset citizens think that they're just a tiny minority, they're much less likely to even talk about politics or let alone try and resist the party. One of the authors of the study said that if these kinds of citizens think there might be many others like them, then dissent could spread quite quickly. So Gabriel, where does this leave the Chinese leadership? There's no sign that the Communist Party is about to face a revolution or even widespread resistance, nothing like that. But party officials do know their history. They are haunted by the collapse of communist regimes in Eastern Europe. There we had opposition movements which grew very quickly after people realized that the anger they felt against the government was actually widespread. So China's propaganda apparatus has an important job guiding public opinion about the party and trying to make sure everyone stays positive. And while this new survey shows support for the party in a slightly less impressive light, officials could point to a different one, which was conducted in November by Edelman, an American consultancy. This one said that 85% of Chinese trusted their government. That was the second best result among the 28 countries that were surveyed. Then again, the firm did not use a list experiment. So what the true level of trust is, is much harder to say. Gabriel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Fully two hours during her first Monte Carlo rally in 1962, Rosemary Smith was being followed. Anne Rowe is The Economist's obituaries editor. She was being followed by the man from the Roots Car Company, who was really intrigued by, first of all, the sight of a woman rally driver at all in those days, and second, by the sheer glamour of the woman in front of him. She had very long legs. She was perfectly made up. Her blonde hair was very nicely styled under her helmet. And in short, she looked every inch the model 
that she'd been not very long before. She'd been pulled out of it by a friend who wanted her to navigate in a rally. And so she was extremely new to the idea of driving a car in such conditions. But she was doing extremely well. However, that wasn't what intrigued the man from the Roots Car Company. It was the thought that, with a woman as glamorous as that, connected with his cars, which were not doing very well in rallies, he would be able to draw everyone's attention to his marks of car. And gradually, his Hillman imps and sunbeam rapiers would become the car everyone was talking about. So when the rally was over, he very soon recruited Rosemary Smith to be a test driver for his company. And she didn't mind that at all. In fact, she realized that her chief role was to be a dolly bird, as she put it, a blonde bombshell, who could look very nice posing on the bonnet of a car and flashing her legs around or lying on an unfolded road map looking sultry. She really didn't mind that as long as he realized that in fact behind all the sophistication there was an extremely determined woman who was very keen to show that women could be just as good in rallies as the men could. She was a superb driver and she was going to show everyone that. Her record was extraordinarily good. She went in for 24 international rallies and in rallies as arduous as some of those were, to finish at all was something of a miracle for any of the contestants. There was one rally in particular she was very proud of, and that was the Tulip Rally in 1965. And there she beat everybody, the boys included. So it was not just the ladies' prize, she won the overall prize. And she really became the first woman to make her name in the very tough world of rallying. She loved being in a car. Driving was incredibly important to her. She'd learned very young at the age of 11, driving the big old family Vauxhall round muddy fields near Dublin. And learning then the prowess she later had at mastering getting out of skids and that sort of thing. She was extraordinarily good at handling cars on slippery surfaces, snow and ice and so on. She found when she got into a car, just strapped herself in, shut the door. She became in that enclosed space, completely sure of herself. It was herself against the world. She could take on anything. And she did have quite a difficult life outside her driving. She never got on with her mother, rowed with her constantly, left home a few times. She was unlucky in her relationships, one disastrous marriage, a lot of relationships that didn't work out pregnancies that never came to anything and business ventures that went sour. But all these things she could put away completely when she was at the wheel of a car. The fastest car she ever drove, or the fastest Hillman at any rate, 
had 65 brake horsepower and a top speed of 92 miles an hour, but she always dreamed of going an awful lot faster than that. My name is Rosemary Smith, and my passion in life is driving fast, very fast. And she did eventually get her chance to drive an 800 brake horsepower Formula One Renault Sport. This came rather late in life, in 2017, when she was 79. And she was the oldest person ever to try to drive such a car. She was trying not to think about what she was about to do. She was quite pleased that the racing suit she was wearing, black with yellow trim, looked very smart. So that pleased her. But she was quivering with nerves when she got in. And it was only when the engine began to roar and she realised what an immense speed she was going at, that she suddenly found all that good old feeling she got in cars, that her troubles were absolutely burning away. The song she wanted played at her funeral was called Blaze Away. on Rosemary Smith, who's died aged 86. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Don't forget that for the month of February, our annual and two-year subscriptions to Economist Podcast Plus are half price. For less than $2.50 a month, you can get access to a whole bunch of premium content. Our weekend edition of The Intelligence, our weekly podcast on China, American politics, and much, much more. All the details you need are in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.